Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 18 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology and reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast, I hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. As a patron, you'll be able to submit questions to the show and get access to tip sheets on nuclear weapons. My headline for this week is hypersonic missiles are unstoppable, and they're starting a new global arms race, published in the New York Times on June 19, 2019. So I've been reading um, a lot of articles about hypersonics recently, and I found this one actually really quietly well done. Quite well done, quietly. Um, And uh, for a number of reasons. So basically, I'll give the overview of the article, but I want to kind of go into a few key points that I found particular provocative, and I'm still going to think about them for a while. So what are hypersonic weapons? Well, they are um, a weapon that delivers either a nuclear or conventional weapon. Um, What makes them special is that they have an unprecedented ability to maneuver and can strike almost any target in the world within a matter of minutes. So how they're different from regular missiles is that they travel more than 50, they can travel up to more than 15 times the speed of sound. So anything beyond Mach 5. And they arrive at their targets virtually without warning. Uh, there are no viable defenses against hypersonics, and there are countries, including the U.S., China, Russia, and other countries who are developing these weapons. In 2018, in fact, Congress mandated the development of a hypersonic weapon for the United States by October 2022. And this year, Trump's administration's proposed defense budget includes $2.6 billion for hypersonics. Um, the immediate goal of the U.S. program is to com- create two deployable systems within the next three years. So there's a lot of um, news headlines about hypersonic weapons and um, fears about the threat of hypersonic weapons. And it's interesting in the article, it talks about how um, the the risks of hypersonic weapons are driving plans to create the new space development agency, um, which will be, among other things, tasked with the launching of a network of sensors into low Earth orbit. These sensors will track incoming hypersonic missiles and also help direct American hypersonic attacks. So I mentioned before that hypersonic missiles can carry nuclear weapons, but they can also um, carry conventional weapons. And that's where things get really interesting. So the weapons being developed by the United States are designed to carry small conventional explosives. Uh, According to the article, these missiles function like nearly invisible power drills that smash holes into their targets to catastrophic effect. So what does this mean? Well, I've been thinking a lot about how these weapons might affect strategic stability and not in terms, not just in terms of the shortened timelines for the delivery of nuclear weapons. But if you think about it, if you can destroy any target around the world within minutes using a small conventional explosive, 
That means that you can target, for example, another country's nuclear forces. This could actually increase the incentive for an offensive first strike, for example. Now I need to think about that a little bit more. Um, in the article, it talks about how these weapons could be used to, for example, target mobile Russian or missile, um, Russian or Chinese nuclear armed ballistic missiles on trucks or rails. They could also attack vital land or sea-based targets, um, radars or military headquarters. Um, they could take out leadership. Um, these weapons could even render an aircraft carrier inoperable within minutes. Think about that. Wow. And they can do all of this without the radioactive fallout and special um, kind of taboo that, associate, that we associate with nuclear weapons. I think this is a really important issue, and um, I think there's a lot of discussion that needs to happen on, on the incentives, potential incentives for war, potential incentives for first strike. I'm also, also wondering, you know, to what extent these weapons, even if they're not armed with nuclear weapons, affect the whole nuclear deterrence equation. So just food for thought. And actually, the interview this week, we're also talking about missiles. This week, I talked to Jamie Withorn. She's a research assistant for the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation. She's also an advisory board member of Girls Security and the founder of www.learnwmd.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm with Jamie Withhorn. She is a research assistant and office manager at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies. She's also a recent graduate from Columbia University in New York City, where she majored in political science, focusing on international relations and comparative politics. Jamie, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I was looking over your bio, and one thing that really caught my interest was that you interned um, at, uh, I'm not, I'm going to murder this name, the Thai Nguyen, is it Nguyen? Uh, Nguyen. Nguyen, Nguyen. All right, yeah. everybody. I apologize. Thai Nguyen, University of Education um, in Hanoi, Vietnam. And I was curious, I, you know, how that came about. Yeah. Um, so kind of my junior year, I was abroad and I had decided that I wanted to go abroad again um, the summer between my junior or my uh, junior and senior year, essentially. Um, and so as a, I was looking into opportunities where I could go and teach because I had, um, all throughout high school, I taught uh, immigrant and refugee children kind of English, and that's just kind of my background is teaching English to uh, students who where English is in their first language. So I wanted to kind of hone in those skills, um, and then I found a really great program through, uh, it's actually, I went to Cultural Vistas, um, which is a sponsor, used to be sponsored by the State Department. I don't know where their funding uh, comes from anymore, but I decided to pursue that. So I ended up actually living in Vietnam for about two to three months, um, and I was in a, a smaller town, so just north of Hanoi, actually, about an hour north of Hanoi, and I taught uh, professors of English uh, better pronunciation and grammar. So it was um, really interesting, and I got to kind of, it was very immersive. Um, I was for a while, I was like the only one in my town who spoke uh, fluent English. <laughs> so that was um, that was a bit of a change of pace. But uh, then uh, some other students came along and kind of we learned uh, or just other students from around the world came along, I guess. Had you um, been in Vietnam before you went over to teach English? No, I hadn't. No, that was uh, my first time in Vietnam. And I absolutely loved it. I would go back in a heartbeat. 
So actually, um, Vietnam was uh, one of the places I visited first when I was working internationally as uh, working for the Department of Defense. And um, I, my fun story from Hanoi, Vietnam, if you've ever been there and you experience the traffic, it's a little crazy from a Western point of view. In fact, it looks very disorderly. And as a pedestrian, there aren't crosswalks or clear places for you cross the street. And the people just kind of walk into the street and like the, the, the bikes and everything move around them. And so basically I would grab onto, well, a Vietnamese lady <laughs> and use her <laughs> to like kind of move across the street because I didn't know how to do it. Um, was it as crazy in North Vietnam or North of Hanoi or? or? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was also my first kind of impression. It was very much like you just kind of go. <laughs> um, my transition was actually coming back from Vietnam. I I would just kind of start walking into the street uh, in America, and my mom would be like, "What are you doing? You're going to get hit by a car." So it was uh, <laughs> kind of the opposite for me because <laughs> I got very used to just walking into the the traffic. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. They just know how not to hit you. It's it's it, but it is um extremely petrifying. Um so. Uh, so, okay, so you went over to Vietnam to teach English. How did you get interested in nuclear weapons? Yeah, so um, growing up in high school, actually, I had wanted to be a nuclear engineer. Um, so that was a nuclear kind of issues were always just something that piques my interest. Um, there's something I didn't really understand and I always wanted to know more about and um, nothing that I was really ever taught in school. So I was always a little curious. Um, but then I took a physics class <laughs> and I decided that maybe engineering wasn't uh, my subject. <laughs> so I kind of slowly pivoted uh, more towards policy and political science. And so my junior year of high school, I got the opportunity to travel abroad to Singapore where I studied sustainable development issues and kind of re renewable energy. Um, and I had the opportunity to meet uh, a diplomat over there at the Singapore uh, US Embassy. Um, and I kind of just decided, I was like, wow, you can make like, a career out of traveling and like being interested in other cultures and other countries. Um, and so as I went to college, I chose to pursue that kind of route of things. Um, and then I was sitting uh, in a intro to international relations course uh, at Columbia um, with Robert Jervis. And I remember him just kind of explaining like the whole security dilemma to me and kind of breaking it down bit by bit. And I just thought, oh, wow, this makes so much sense. Um, and so I decided to kind of pivot myself more towards national security. Um, and as I did so, I, I found nuclear weapons to kind of be perhaps the best example of this security dilemma and like the best example of state like escalated state tensions and state relations and kind of those uh, interactions between states um and so i kind of i just fell in love and i've been pursuing it ever since it's so interesting um that you you know started to get interested in high school do you remember what spiked your interest to become a nuclear engineer in the first place um i think it's Again, largely because it was just so unknown to me. Um, I, I'm always curious about things that I don't know or I don't really have access to. I, I grew up in South Dakota, um, and so we, we always used to joke that the nukes were in our backyard, so to speak, because we have um, mine up to our north. Uh, and so we kind of always, they were always in our peripheral, but we never really like talked about them. And so I knew I wanted to like, again, just the unknown made me want to know more, if that makes sense. It's interesting, you know, because your location being near to actual missile silos might have 
just giving you an awareness that maybe other people in other states don't have. Um, for for mm -hmm. me, um, I my dad liked to watch a lot of movies, scary movies, and so I was exposed to them when I was young. And so I think I watched China Syndrome when I was like eight years old or something like yeah. that. And, and then oh, I, wow. I thought about nuclear for the first time, but it it really didn't. Um, take root for me until I got to grad school. So it's always interesting to me to um, talk to younger people who are getting excited about this field um, earlier in their life. So recently we had um, uh, the Carnegie Nonproliferation Conference. It's um, I think every two years, I, I can't remember how often it is, and we call it the Nuke Fest um, in our community. And um, you know, coming out of that conference, there was um, some discussion on Twitter amongst you and other um, young people about how the the nuclear community is not that interesting anymore, or or not open to new ideas. Is that kind of your your sense? I mean, could you describe, you know, for some of us who have been in this field for a long time and you're 23. How do you see the current state of play in the nuclear weapons policy community? Sure. So I think kind of where that discussion was coming from is uh, I think some younger people had expected a different kind of nuclear experience, right? So uh, I thought my personal experience at Newcrest was uh, fantastic. I got to learn and it was kind of what I was expecting in terms of it would be kind of heavy networking, heavy lessons that we all talk about on a day-to-day -day basis and kind of like what our specialty is. Whereas I guess some of the other uh, young voices in the community really wanted to focus more on like a health status check update of the, the, the policy kind of American, U.S. nuclear policy community itself. Um, and I think that's um, a really good effort um, in, in my opinion, just because at present, I don't think the nuclear policy community is necessarily not welcoming, but I do think it is a difficult world to kind of breach into. And then I think there are um, retention issues that need to be addressed. And so if we want, as a young nuke person who's just kind of gotten into this field, I think my personal goal is to kind of continuously challenge the in question the underlying assumptions that have made policy nuclear weapons policy up to this point and i think in challenging that and kind of in getting that new newness you really need to have new voices right and new ideas and so yeah, i think there does i think current community is relatively receptive to this because they understand that new voices means new data means new policy ideas and I think the current or the previous kind of new generation, so to speak, has very well laid the foundation for that development. It's just kind of we're having those retention issues where um, the kind of career pathways aren't the same anymore as they once used to be. And so we're having to kind of create a new uh, kind of job experience, I guess, um, as we go because it's not that easy to get into Gov anymore. It's not that easy to pay for grad school anymore. So it's, it's uh, I think it's a societal problem that affects more communities than just the US nuclear policy community. But I think it is one that that's what we should probably be discussing. Um, and I think that there is support for it, obviously. Um, and so I'm excited to kind of see 
where this conversation can go and where what it can lead to. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, sometimes we talk about um, often in the nuclear community about how nuclear technology is old technology. It was developed in the 1940s. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, many of the ways that we think about nuclear weapons and how to manage their risks are decades old. Um, Right. And, you know, you hinted around, you know, the fact that there are a lot of assumptions in nuclear weapons policy that are just taken for granted. And one of them is the fact that the United States has a nuclear weapons arsenal and relies very heavily upon deterrence or the notion of deterrence with other potential nuclear adversaries to prevent the worst case scenario from happening, that is the use of nuclear weapons. And so one of, one of the things that I, I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective and the next generation's perspective, we're about, the U.S. government is about to spend, I don't know, the estimates are all over the place, but let's just, you know, throw out a number, $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years to modernize its nuclear arsenal. And essentially that means that we're going to, you know, basically make new submarines, make new missiles, um, and upgrade and warheads and all of that stuff. So modernize our nuclear arsenal. Is this, I mean, do you guys buy into this? Is this something that we absolutely need? Because $1.2 trillion is a lot of money. So how, do your, how does your generation see the role of nuclear weapons moving forward and nuclear deterrence? Sure. So um, I, <laughs> I'll add the caveat that I don't speak for everyone in my generation. I'm not. <laughs> no. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah. But I, I'm sure there's, uh, again, various opinions. Um, I think my generation, what often gets confused is the difference between when we look at that budget, that giant, giant budget, when we look at the difference between capacity building and modernizing, right? So I think both uh, need to be, so to clarify, cap- capacity building is making new weapons or more new warheads or like the, the new um, mini nuke, so to speak, whereas modernizing is kind of replacing um, the aging systems with systems that are not aged, but it's the same weapon itself. Um, so I think at present, we, uh, I don't understand why you're spending so much money on a system that's already working, right? So if we're, why are we going to spend X amount of dollars on a system that's already been safe, that's already been safe for multiple years, um, just to kind of have the same technology? So that's my kind of view on modernization, if that makes sense. Um, I think it's, while things do rust and things get old, I don't think the need uh, for these, this kind of mass, um, massive amounts of these weapons is the same as it once was. And so I think that the price tag should also be reconsidered uh, as we reconsider kind of the posturing of the weapons themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way forward on that is uh, actually through Congress and uh, kind of reaching a, a bipartisan understanding. However, uh, in this day and age, I think my generation is a little weary of any potential bipar- like bipartisanship insofar as that we haven't seen it recently and we don't, I don't, I wouldn't expect it um, just because of the current political that's like undertones but we haven't seen a lot of good examples of bipartisan leadership would you say in the Mm -hmm. last few few years yeah yeah i I, I think i agree with that so it's uh, a little polarizing (laughs) 
Um, a, a big part of um, the modernization has to do with delivery systems and um, some of those delivery systems are missiles. And so I thought that what we could do is kind of offer listeners and uh, who are authors, um, write, potentially writing about these issues, a little primer on missile proliferation. And so I, just, I thought I'd, you know, let's keep in mind that authors probably don't know a lot of these things. And you did a really good job, I think it was on Instinct Media, where you did a definitions post and helped people navigate a lot of these, these terms. So what are the different types of missiles that deliver nuclear weapons? Sure. So there are two different kinds of basic missiles um, that usually can deliver either conventional or nuclear warheads. And then those would include ballistic missiles or cruise missiles. So um, ballistic missiles are missiles that exit the Earth's atmosphere very, very basically. So they go up and then they go down. They don't really have um, uh, a guidance system outside of like an engine, so to speak. Whereas a cruise missile has um, an engine and it stays within the Earth's atmosphere, so it doesn't exit. It just kind of cruises below the atmosphere. And um, so what are the, so in addition to having those different types of missiles, there are of course many different ranges and so they're called different things. So we'll start with an intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM. So yeah, so this is the different ranges and Sure. So ballistic missiles are generally categorized by their ranges. So it's kind of how long they go. And my kind of rule of thumb in national security and nuclear weapons acronyms is if anything ends in BM or starts with BM, it's usually referring to a ballistic missile. Um, and so an ICBM is an intercontinental ballistic missile. And these are the biggest missiles um, usually in an arsenal um, because, because they go the longest, right? So uh, right now, like the U.S., an example of an ICBM would be the Minuteman. And so these missile, ballistic missiles have the ability to travel, uh, as the name would suggest, from continent to continent. Um, these are also kind of the missiles we often worry about our adversaries uh, being capable of developing because it would develop, they would be able to then strike us, right? Um, then we have the intermediate range ballistic missile. These are the IRBMs. And so these are, again, uh, also measured in range. And these are just a slightly smaller range between uh, our, uh, of a missile. So I think a good example of an IRBM um, if you guys, as recently in the news, we've heard a lot about um, the INF Treaty, which is the Intermediate uh, Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, um, and that's between Russia and kind of uh, NATO, and it will mainly the U.S. Um, but that was initially kind of created to limit Russia developing intermediate range weapons or missiles uh, to strike Western Europe. Uh, and so these are, again, not as long of a range as an ICBM, but still a good amount. Um, we also have the immediate range ballistic missiles, which um, is, again, slightly smaller than, so it just kind of incrementally gets smaller. Medium range ballistic missile has a smaller range than the IRBM, and then we have the short range ballistic missile, which is the, the shortest one of them all. And sometimes these are referred to as scuds because during the Cold War, the Soviets developed a short-range ballistic missile, um, and it was the NATO kind of classification name was called a Scud. So, and now in kind of common rhetoric, any weapon that's um, in line with the the Soviet Scud kind of model is now uh, is considered an SRBM. 
these are essentially rocket systems and they sent basically they can carry nuclear or conventional weapons on the end of them. Um, but there are other uses for these rocket systems. I'm wondering if you could describe a few of those so that people understand that um, it's not just to deliver weapons. Sure. So the, the rocket systems can be used for um, multiple other things, right? So um, you can use it to, sometimes you can use it to launch satellites into space for like GPS or imaging or anything along those lines. So kind of developing the same ballistic trajectory or a same launch uh, technology can help you get that sort of technology. Um, and you can also do it uh, for missile defense systems. So um, while this is uh, not the best use, I guess, of a missile, um, you can have uh, a kill vehicle, or you can launch, essentially what missile defense systems do is launch a missile at an incoming missile, right? So you launch a system and then you have a kill vehicle try and attack the, the missile coming into uh, your territory, if that makes sense. So ballistic missile defense system, for example. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, so there's a lot of um, uh, news headlines about hypersonics. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what are hypersonic vehicles or missiles? Um, how are they fundamentally different from ballistic or cruise missiles? And what is the big deal? Yeah. So um, I like to kind of call all the... I saw this on Twitter, but I like to call all the current dialogue about hypersonic, uh, sort of hypersonic weapons, hyper hype, right? Because it's there's a lot of hype about these weapons, um, and uh, essentially what they are is a hypersonic weapon is anything that travels at Mach five, which is five times the speed of um, sound. So these weapons. Um, are currently in development, um, and you have kind of two versions of these weapons. You have a hypersonic cruise missile, so again, a missile that stays below the Earth's atmosphere but can travel at, um, they're just faster than the current uh, cruise missiles we have, like the Tomahawk. Um, and then you also have a hypersonic boost glide uh, system, which is different because they're, essentially what it is is it combines very, very basically, it combines the technology of both a ballistic missile and a cruise missile. So it's, they launch hypersonic glide vehicles, boost glide vehicles, excuse me, into the upper atmosphere um, atop a normal uh, ballistic missile. And then they release the um, what's called a hypersonic glide vehicle or an HGV. And then that flies lower and faster um, to an adversary, much different than a traditional kind of ballistic warhead trajectory so it, you can able to kind of circumnavigate any defenses so why those are talked about so commonly is because everyone's afraid that if our adversaries develop these weapons where our missile defense systems are going to be rendered uh, kind of useless but I would argue missile defense already doesn't work despite the, the speed of your missile because it's already kind of like hitting a bullet with a bullet so while hypersonic weapons are, I think they're really cool and they're really fast, um, it's kind of still the same concept and same, same, still the same utility as a traditional missile. Well, aren't they, aren't they more targetable than like a ballistic missile, for example? Um, in terms of getting hit, struck down? No, in terms of um, being able to hit the, like circumvent obstacles. Uh, yeah, 
hit a target exactly more precisely that would yes so the um the hgvs the glide vehicles and the thing you can kind of circumnavigate around uh, defense systems and you can more precisely hit a target um but again it's just kind of faster and i think I don't actually know um, the accuracy rates of hypersonic weapons uh, currently because I think there's still a lot of them are still in uh, the research and development stage. Yeah, that, that's true. Okay, awesome. Well, that that's a, a good kind of starting point um, on missile technology. So um, you are also an advisor um, board advisory board member for Girl Security. Um, what is Girl Security? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Girls Security um, was an organization started to kind of bring national security issues to high school students. Um, the, their goal is to, uh, I think, empower, secure, and advance high school students, uh, mainly girls, focusing on national security issues. So it's um, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that's uh, kind of traveling across uh, multiple cities bringing national security curriculum directly into high school classrooms. And have you been in the classroom teaching as part of this? I have not. Um, so most of our classes thus far have been in Chicago and in Boston. Um, but I'm very excited because upcoming in June, we are going to have um, a war game with high school students where it's uh, we kind of do a nuclear crisis simulation on the North Korean Peninsula. So um, I'm very excited to kind of see where that goes. And I've been doing a lot of kind of the content development for that. So I focus more on the, the back end of things, but um, I hope to get in the classroom eventually. Well, that's awesome. So you are very passionate about raising awareness, education, um, because you've recently also started up a new website called learnwmd.com. So why did you start up this website? Yeah. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm I'm education is kind of one of my uh, passions, and I think it's uh, one of my values. Uh, and I really enjoy learning more. Like that's what I want to do for the rest of my life is continue to learn and kind of continue to question what I know and kind of push what I know to the limits. And so I think I want others to find the same kind of excitement I do in these learning processes. Um, and so as I was falling kind of more into the new quarrels, I found that a lot of the information that is needed to build these foundational knowledge blocks, so to speak, um, wasn't necessarily easily accessible. And what I mean by that is it was hard to find um, like information on what kind of warheads there were, right? It took me several, like, peruses through the nuclear notebook with the Federation for American Scientists to find the different kinds of warheads themselves, not just the missiles. And so it, it wasn't easy to do that. And so I would allocate, like, two hours every day to just kind of fall into Google holes, is what I call them. So just Googling <laughs> things and trying to find out um, where this information is coming from. Um, and I, as I was doing that, I kind of always thought there has to be a better way. Um, so I decided in my free time to just kind of make a learning commons is what I've been calling it. So on this learning commons, I want to just kind of collect uh, data that I come across uh, and sources that I come across uh, and that I find helpful. So on my website, I have 
like kind of very uh, informally divided into two sections for instructors and for learners. So instructors are kind of anyone who's looking to teach more about nuclear weapons. And I have syllabi recommendations based on past courses I've taken. Um, I've tried to kind of really heavily emphasize women scholars because I often think women are missing from nuclear uh, syllabi. If I wanted to really show that there are sources out there, you just kind of have to put in the effort to find them. Um, and then I have lesson plans that can easily be integrated into high school curriculum. So I get the kind of both university and um, high school level uh, kind of instructor access. And then I've created a learning uh, for learner section. And so this kind of has just uh, nuclear Weapons 101, um, what they are, who has them, who's talking about them, how does it work, where, where the laws, where, like, what, basically everything, <laughs> right? So everything I could think of off the top of my head that I think would be useful, um, I put on there. And so um, it is a comment, so I'm trying to kind of get more public involvement and getting more people to recommend me sources to recommend me kind of websites that they found uh, were helpful so I'm going to hopefully I'm, well I'm definitely going to continue to develop it and I want to eventually redesign it so it's a, a more along the lines of a database so to speak but it's where it's still easy to use and easy to find the source the exact source you're looking for well, this is, this is uh, also a passion of mine. This is why I've started up this podcast to help authors tell great stories while getting the technical details right. And I think as you pointed out, the internet has become, it's, it's a wealth of information, but the, the challenge is sorting through the information and digging deep. So you, you had to go a couple layers deep or many, many layers deep to find the information on specific warheads. Um, you know but you um, want to learn about these issues so you're motivated to do so. Authors, you know, they, they want to learn about these issues because they want to get the details right, but sometimes that takes away from writing time so that your resource could not just be um, there for scholars and students and policymakers, but, but possibly also pop culture, people who are writing films and, and novels um, about these issues and trying to get the technical details right. So I absolutely absolutely love what you're doing. Um, so how much, how much time do you have to spend on this? I, I, it's always fun to start up new ideas and then you realize how, how much time it takes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, being more junior staff, um, I have a few jobs, um, to pay rent. So those obviously come first, <laughs> but, um, and given all my other activities, but I, this is, it, it took a lot more than I, um, thought it would because I kind of came up with this year like oh it'll be easy I've been doing this for uh like three years now I have all these sources and then as I like kind of started building it out and I was like oh this is not going to <laughs> be quick um so it I the first kind of initial launch took about a month and so now as I I'm hoping to update the content I'm hoping to a lot um seven hours out of um like every two weeks to really help build up the content um pending you know work schedules and all that so it's it's a it's a it's a time commitment but i think it really has the potential to be something great so um it's something i'm definitely willing to dedicate my time to well and it's amazing what you can accomplish in small chunks of time over time so i think that's something that authors really know well even if they spend only 10 hours a week writing 
um, I somehow am able to churn out a novel in six or seven months. And I don't even know how I did it because I did it in my free time. So, um, right. So, and they can find this website. Is it, it's www.learnwmd.com. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And are there any other places to find you articles that you'd like to highlight for my listeners' websites? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, specifically kind of for your listeners and for, again, kind of getting the really basic kind of building blocks of uh, new talk. Um, I think I wrote an article for Inkstick Media. So it's uh, I-N-K-S-T-I-C-K media, M-E-D-I-A dot com. And I wrote an article called DC Dictionary. Um, and in this piece, I basically outline 25 kind of acronyms that are commonly used in national security and nuclear dialogue. And I've broken them down to very simplistic kind of funny uh, reminders to help better understand what the terms are. Well, that's, um, and that's I, really helpful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, as kind of the interns come to DC in May, um, I'm hoping to release a second volume so you can find it there. Awesome. Well, you know, uh, one of the big challenges as authors is if you don't use these terms every day, you don't know that you're using the right terms. So I think that will be a really good resource. So I think if they look up your, your name, Jamie Withhorn plus Inkstick Media, they should probably come to the dictionary article. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Yeah. Thank you so much again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.